Hello, my name is Catherine McCarthy. I'm the author of the novella Immortel and the collection Mists and Megaliths. And you're listening to the HB Lovecast podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 44 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on the horror and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Dyack, a a pop culture scholar of peplum films, industrial music, horror studies, and I'm the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature, From Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarlane. Today we'll be discussing two short stories from Lynn Janmick's edited collection, Dreams from the Witch House, Female Voices of Lovecraftian Horror, published by Dark Regions Press in 2015. The stories are, Gemma Files, Every Hole in the Earth We Will Claim as Our Own, Home, sorry, and Nancy Kilpatrick's Eye of the Beholder. But first, let's open up with an overview of the collection. Lim Jamnak is the editor of Dreams from the Witch House and discusses in her introduction the focus of her collection. Obviously, this is a collection that focuses exclusively on short stories written by contemporary female horror writers. Each story seeks to access this idea of beyondness that is one of the elements identifiable with Lovecraftian literature. However, these stories are not likely to be considered traditionally Lovecraftian, in part because the source is from a female perspective, but, quote, there is something extremely human about the stories included here, and in Lovecraft, the focus has often been on the non-human, end quote. In fact, Jamek claims the collection, quote, celebrates humanity, both the good and bad. Fear, greed, curiosity, uncertainty, terror, revulsion, all these traits and more arise within the stories contained here. Yet they evidence confrontations with terror and the subsequent outcomes of these conflicts that in many ways feel more decisive than Lovecraft's penchant for having his protagonist succumb to madness." I think our two tales that we've selected exemplifies this point. So we'll get started with our first short story. Every Hole in the Earth We Will Claim as Our Home by Gemma Files. Uh, An unnamed narrator has called a mental health issues hotline. They have something they need to get off their chest. A few weeks ago, during one of their shifts doing security at a children's hospital, they witness a young boy of measles admitted. In the waiting room, his mom weeps. Later in their rounds, they see a mysterious older woman whispering to the mother. The protagonist eavesdrops, and hears the older woman talking about losing her own family to a tsunami, and only her young daughter survived, but barely. Uh, She, too, had encountered a mysterious old woman who tells her about the polong and the peliset, two insect-like critters who crawl into your mouth and burrow into your brain, but keep you alive. 
The mother of the measles child is skeptical of the polong and the pellicet, wondering in the end if it would still be her child or not. A day later, the child is suddenly becomes cured and discharged. During a checkup, the protagonist encounters the mom, her child, the mysterious woman, and their child. The two children give her creepy vibes as they communicate in a clicky language to each other. The protagonist begins having weird dreams of being deep in the ocean. They relate all this to the rep on the other end of the phone and then hang up. So, Michelle, overall thoughts of Gemma Files's story? Um, I would say that uh, to start, I like the framing device of the hotline that the protagonist uses to relay her story to basically an innocent uh, bystander um, who is bound by the confidential confidentiality clause. Mm-hmm. So she, you know, the, the person, you know, feels that they can relate the story, but know that they haven't um, divulged any sort of um, details about any of the parties in the story. I also thought that the main character was kind of an everyday person, someone that I felt um, most people could probably identify with, maybe not working in a healthcare industry necessarily, but the fact her reasons for, you know, kind of just staying put in a job um, and not making a change and being kind of having family critical about that, um, I don't know, that just seemed kind of resonated. Um, I also felt like the story uh, did a nice job pulling in some of the Lovecraft elements, um, at least, you know, uh, at a surface level, particularly uh, South Pacific locale and mentions of the great old ones. Um, I also found that um, it was interesting that the story unfolds in a healthcare facility. Um, There's themes of motherhood um, and you know, care of children, and um, the featuring of kind of insect-type creatures, um, which is uh, all themes and elements that we'll also see in the second story as well. Those are kind of my initial thoughts, um, but Nick, what were your thoughts too? That was a decent story. There's some, there's some really good ideas in this story, and I too like the narrative device of talking on the phone. It made me think of the movie Memento, all the, the black and white scenes where, um, I think it's Guy Pierce. he's on the phone talking to someone on the other end. You don't hear the their half the dialogue, and there's this sense of urgency and mysteriousness going on. And I was feeling that in the story. But I, I had issues with, uh, <laughs> it's a good story, but it, it has kind of a critical flaw in that the protagonist's actions don't kind of, merit the payoff in this story there's a lot of kind of hand waving and telling and not showing which i think we'll we'll discuss uh, a bit more in a bit but it is also funny how this story and the story that we're also going to talk about uh later <laughs> there's a lot of overview over um health motherhood uh children's selfishness and stuff like that so, so so some overlapping themes which is always great to uh to talk about so I think a, a good starting point is, since we're both kind of more film scholars, is, you know, let's talk about some of the, the, the cinematic references, or at least feelings that we were getting in this story, because that's always a nice intertextual gateway into these short stories. Uh, I brought it Memento Aurelia. I, I was getting a strong Memento uh, vibe, but the the kids at the end, you know, they have a... They're, they're like kind of moving in uniform, turning their head right, talking in a secret language to each other. It has kind of like shades of like 
uh, Village of the Damned, but also when you have like aliens or monsters or critters inside of you, you know, they're kind of like possession films, but not really. You know, possession films kind of have like ghosts and other stuff, but you know, movies like Slither, where you know the alien parasites go mm -hmm. inside you, and since they're also kind of hive mindy, you know, a little bit of invasion of the body snatchers, and there's definitely subtle invasion overtones in the story, you know. I, I think I think it's getting at the the great old ones under the ocean are using the uh the two critters, the pro the 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 two things. <laughs> I have them written down but Oh, it's... the the Peliset and the Prolon. Yeah, you know, they're using them to kinda like subtly do some invasion type stuff, you know, one person at a time type deal. Uh so there's there's a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. But what kind of film tones were you reading? Um, I was definitely uh, catching the vibe with the um, Village of the Dam, the 1960 version. Um, that's the one that I remember. I haven't. I don't think I've seen the remake. Um, Which one? There's so many. I think oh, there's yeah, a little Nimoy and an Abel Ferrera. But yeah, the classic uh, McCarthy one, right? Village of the Dam. Oh, Vill Village but, of the Dam. I'm sorry. I was thinking the, of Body Snatchers. Duh. Yeah, but Invasion of the Body Snatchers too. Yeah, definitely Kevin McCarthy, the 1950s version. But I thought that the Donald Sutherland's mm -hmm. version was also quite good. Um, I was also getting the vibe of um, David Cronenberg's, one of his mm -hmm. early films called uh, The Brood from 1979. Mm -hmm. Definitely that, that psychically linked, that hive mentality. I think we've even seen that more recently. I think... Was it the facility where there are aliens uh, in the guise of the teachers? And I think they kind of have like some sort not, not of... Not facility, faculty. The faculty, yes, I'm sorry. The faculty. I think they're, they have a little of that, unless I'm really remembering the movie incorrectly. Uh, faculty ruled early John Stewart film when he wasn't doing The Daily Show. <laughs> um, there's also a little bit of folk horror to this as well. I, I, I see that the two little critters is kind of like folk horror monsters and kind of like a mystics in bally vein where... that was interesting that you picked up on a, on a kind of a folk horror um because we definitely have had a lot of folk horror in uh cinema recently over the last couple of years so it's interesting that this this um this book is from 2015 but i believe the essays are have been republished from other <clears throat> other places so i don't I don't remember when this actual essay was. So it's interesting picking up on a on a folk, folk horror aspect. I, I just kind of see, like, these two uh, critters as something that they've been around a long time, kind of mm -hmm. passed through oral tradition. Oh, you, you know, make a deal with the devil, and these two things will come in, you know, great, you kind of wishy type things, but at what cost? So there's that kind of vibe to it, a little... Um, you know, oral tradition kind of being trashed down. I mean, and also it's being passed down, you know, from these moms who have kind of, well, at least from our perspective in the story, moms to another host because, hey, you know, I've got two sets of critters now in this kid and I've got to spawn them off to another one. So, um, yeah, very, very, very interesting. It's kind of, you know what, now that I think about it, not quite like a, a viral type thing, but there's shades of like kind of, Ponty pool in a way where kind of communication is the key to kind of pass something on and so you know this grieving mom found another grieving mom found another grieving mom you know the stories passed down so kind of the importance of language a little bit a little tenuous there but 
But I think that fits within your concept of folk horror mm -hmm. and the idea of, of some sort of tradition that is passed down, yeah. be it orally or th visually through images. Like I'm, I'm thinking back to Midsummer, where um, the main protagonist, she's looking at the quilt on the wall, which is giving them the oral that oral tradition so it that's all kind of part of it that was a, a good observation yeah it also fits in kind of like the lovecraftian thing of like oh i'm listening to the notes of inspector lagrasse and i'm you know interviewing these people and i'm interviewing that people so there is that kind of like evidence gathering aspect of it as well now there's some themes to this story and this is what the story does very well is this despite this book coming out in 2015 and the story is even older uh this story is extremely relevant for today uh in our covid times um the kid gets measles and there there's some commentary done in the story about this kid getting measles that are extremely applicable um on page 148 quote what we've been Getting a rise in lately is kids who can't be vaccinated catching from kids whose parents opt to not have them vaccinated for one reason or another, but still send them out in the world, end quote. And then on page 153, when the older lady is talking to the, uh, the kind of, you know, weeping mom, quote, so tell me, the other woman asked her, why should he die of something that should have been wiped out 20 years ago? Your boy, just because of other people's selfishness, end quote. And, you know, those those are pretty, re, you know, resounding uh, bits of dialogue of today. Of, you know, there's some selfish people out there that aren't getting vaccinated. They're not masking out. They're going out there and party hardying and, you know, getting COVID, passing it on to their family. You know, uh, you know, schools opening up and shoving all their kids in, and they're getting COVID and stuff. And and, and this, I don't see this as a political story, although we've managed to politicize this. It's more of kind of a an ethical story, and it just seems very topical. Uh, that that you know, the story is very relatable to what we're seeing out today. That you know, we shouldn't have to be dealing with widespread pandemics in our modern day of modern medicine and of you know people who should be a bit smarter than this the whole deal with the vaccination was interesting and i thought it was very uh fortuitous and um that the author kind of connected to that idea and she actually did it a different way though uh, the her her gateway was actually through ronald Dahl. Um, which was a true story about his eldest daughter who did not get the necessary vaccination um, and did contract measles and did die from complications. Um, and as a result, Dahl did become an advocate for immunization, um, particularly in the 80s, um, with regards to measles, which could have been wiped out or, you know, definitely taken care of um, by having the immunization done. Um, what we don't know is, and this kind of ties back with some of the other part of the story, this really focuses in on motherhood and the decision that the mothers make about the children. There are no dads involved, so fatherhood is very silent here. Yeah, the the one dad in here, he he takes off early in the story. It's like I got to go to work, and 
you know, that that's kind of, that could be taken a couple different ways that, you know, maybe the dad doesn't have the coping mechanisms to deal with his son having measles, or maybe he's a workaholic, he doesn't care about his family, or the family is actually truly in financial dire straits, and he has to sac he wants to be there, but he has to sa sacrifice that time to go to work. So all three of them are, are potential paths of why there's no dad present. And all, all, all three of them are tragic in their own ways. Yeah, and I think that's a good segue into this idea of parenthood, motherhood, and, you know, the, I think the parent's worst nightmare is dying, uh, is their child dying before them. It's not a natural kind of linear time of events. Parents should pass on before the kids. And so, you know, that brings up the question of when faced with do you keep your child alive but with these creatures in the body so that they end up being kind of a shell but you have the physical mm -hmm. you know apparition or the physicality of your child is still there but mentally and kind of that soulfulness of that child is really no longer there so it's that's i think where that selfishness is coming in yeah i mean is the mom keeping her faux son alive with the critters inside of it for his best interests or because of her own i i hate to use the word selfishness but i'm going to use mm -hmm. it there's probably i mean she's a grieving mom you know obviously she wants her son back well what links would you do to get your child back is one of the questions that the story asks and we see that play out in a lot of stories out there um but in this case, there is a definite deal with the devil type of vibe going on here. And as we mm -hmm. know, those stories never end in good for anyone. <laughs> a short-term game for a long-term something else. And But, you know, um, it also raises, as you're talking about, yeah, the, the, the son is a shell, but it's also her son. That's a very, um, oh, I'm terrible with this philosopher's name. B Bullard? Bullard? You know simulacrum in the you know when the when the copy becomes the real thing oh um jean um Ball ballard something like that i i'm not too great with uh sorry french french words <laughs> elude me um but but there, there's that little aspect of it there too where the cop where the copy becomes the real thing mm -hmm. um yeah and, that's and a good read mm-hmm it, that, that's my very superficial read. If I can't say the own philosopher's name, that means I'm kind of winging it. But but it does raise that, that kind of question there, that, that the mom, to her, it sounds like the copy will be just as good as the real deal. And it does, that brings that in as well. But Again, I think, though, obviously the copy is there. You have, again, the physicality of the child. You have the child you know, there's interaction, but it really isn't the same. Or is it? <laughs> if well, you take a, that morality and reading. You, yeah, yeah, that's but true. I think that's kind of the one of the central themes of this story, though, is... I, again, I hate to use the word selfishness. I'm just not gifted with something else when you're a parent in mourning and you have to make that tough call. But, you know, the... Uh, but the mom's also presented with the dilemma that 
you know, she's the next in this chain, almost like a chain letter type thing that an, an older woman approached her, an older woman approached that person before, that she's got to do this later on as well, it sounds like, to transmit these critters once they, for lack of better words, get big and incubate inside of her own son. So, you know, she's she's taking that on that, you know what, it's it going back to cinematic uh, influences, it makes me think of The Ring, where, you know, you watch the haunted tape, and if you don't pass it on, uh, the ghost girl will kill you. Um, so what does, uh, I think it's Naomi Watts, what she has to do? She makes a copy of the tape and passes it on. Or very much like, uh, what's that movie? Don't, don't look back. Oh my god. It's the one where, you know, you have sex with someone. and that It per follows. It follows, yeah. I was thinking that one. Yeah, it follows. It, it kind of has a little bit of those tinges in it that, you know, the mom ultimately has to pass these critters on. And it sounds like it's probably a nefarious thing because, you know, they're agents for the old ones. They've got plans. We can't. But, you know, hey, if you if you lean into them and do what they want, you might get some sort of payoff. And she's going for that. So, to me, I get... Grieving mom, she's her head's probably not in the best place. She's gonna make the deal with the devil. So with that in mind, I kind of want to go back to my like overview where I did have a little bit of an issue with this story, and that's where I think the actions don't merit the outcome. And um, what that is is this person is on the phone. They've got something to, to get off their chest. They've they've encountered this apparently big you know, brouhaha, there's insect bugs going into people and everything, and I just, the way it's kind of conveyed, I don't buy it, and what I mean by that is, I think back to Nick Mamatas's edited anthology, Wonder and Glory Forever, where those stories are all about getting that peak of the, how the universe works, that sublime of the true universe, and, you know, it's this awe-inspiring thing, and I think the story is trying to do that, but it doesn't accomplish it, and and what I mean by that is, is like the main character, they're working security at a hospital. They're pretty overt up front that they've seen some stuff. This is a rough shift. A lot of people don't make it. And mm -hmm. they kind of attribute it to like, maybe I'm a little lazy and I don't want to move on. Or maybe I'm kind of comfortable here, which, which I relate to as well. When you're talking about the every person, you know, we kind of get a little comfortable in our jobs. But, you know, they're dealing with sick kids. They, they do security, so they deal with sick kids. They're probably dealing with folks coming in off the streets or people shot. Who knows? But they're seeing some stuff late at night. So to me, that strikes me as a very hardened individual. So what really transpires in the story? Well, one, they eavesdrop on this older lady talking to the mom about bugs taking over people. And that does sound kind of crazy, but at the same time, it, I feel like that's this kind of crazy talk you know we've heard worse things on a public bus um if if the older lady had like some sort of magical quality in her whisperings like like something hypnotic something otherworldly that would make the protagonist more invested like oh my god i'm hooked i i i'm compelled to listen i i've lost control of myself because this person is like a siren of sorts then i would start buying into this but but really, at a cursory glance, it's just a lady talking to a mom about, you know, buggy-type things and stuff that they even Google later. So this isn't, like, hidden knowledge in a Cthulhu sense of crazy cults and stuff. I mean, they easily Googled up and here's these monsters. It'd be like, 
two people talking about vampires. And then at the end, you know, they, they, he, they see the two kids, and the kids are playing, then they stop playing, and they kind of go robot mode and start clicking. That sounds unnerving, but at the same time, again, I'm an I'm outsider looking in. They're also kids. They're goofing around. I mean, you could take it from that perspective, like, oh my god, there's someone there. Quick, give them the stare treatment. You know, I mean, that's obviously not what's going on. It's supposed to be more menacing that. But at the same time, I just don't feel like those two encounters merit the, oh my god, I'm having these visions of being under the ocean and Cyclopean cities and all this other stuff. It just doesn't merit it. And I'm going to, and I think one of the reasons why is there's no healthy dosage of skepticism. And I, I mean, like, compared to Call of Cthulhu, where mm-hmm. the protagonist in Call of Cthulhu, it takes them two-thirds of the story to finally buy in. You know, they get their uncle's notes, they interview the artist that, you know, was making the bass relief, they get the Inspector Legrasse notes, and hear that story. And throughout the way, they maintain this healthy skepticism of, this is BS, this is BS. And it isn't until the end where they get the the diary of the sailor where it finally really clicks for them like oh my god this is a big deal and i i think this story kind of needs that healthy bit of skepticism or else this hardy person is either easily duped or or it's just a hand wavy type story and i think it's a hand wavy type story and and there's there's a passage in here that i think lends to that and on page 157 they say quote and i know I know without having seen, without understanding how, just know, end quote. And, and to me, that, that just brings it all down. That's that's supposed to be the band-aid to kind of justify why they're having crazy dreams, why, you know, the things that they witnessed were kind of weird. And it, it, to me, it, it instead of underscoring it, it makes the house of cards fall flat. The ideas are good. There's some cool stuff here. The the bugs, the underwater reference cities, um, uh, uh, the, the kids acting weird. Like, alone, they're cool, and they can be stringed together, but because the protagonist isn't hooked. Us, as a reader, I'm hooked as a reader, but I don't buy the protagonist being hooked by the actions going on, and hence why I think the story kind of falters a bit. Yeah, I think it goes back to the um, telling rather than the showing. The fact that our protagonist overhears something and they have one encounter with the children, which, like you said, they could have been, like, totally pulling a fast one. You know, oh, let's, when that security card, let's act like bugs or, you know, let's act like robots or something like that. They're kids. Kids are unpredictable and imaginative. They'll do weird stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's where I would agree. I think that if there had been something more where our protagonist had seen something more, to 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 be a little more a buy-in from that person. More involved. Yeah, because they really are just, they're, they're a bystander. And, and the, the more likely a person is going to say, that's crazy, and move on with their mm-hmm. life. Yes. And and I just feel like... I, I, I was thinking about this story, like, where the mom that's sitting in the waiting room and talks to the grieving woman with the boy. I feel like if there had been more fear mm-hmm. by the initial woman who's trying to put the offer out there, she's fearing of losing her daughter again. 
because of the bugs that's in there, if they, they get too big, they're going to actually damage and destroy the shell that's true. of the that's child. True. So she has a sense of urgency mm-hmm. that we don't really get a sense of. All we get is a, is kind of a, a high level, the mother that that's weeping for her son, who's going to die if there isn't something done. And so... I think there's just a little bit of disconnect and a little bit of what's the story really going for? What would, you know, if you picked kind of, okay, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to create this sense of urgency in in the the flashback storytell that's going to help propel the story forward. Or alternatively, I'm going to work a little harder on tying in those Lovecraftian themes to create you know, those visuals that need to happen for our protagonist that would have helped to bring the story around and be stronger. I think that as far as a study of humanity, the good, the bad, the fear, the greed, the uncertainties, I think it kind of does some of those connections. It does, especially with the grieving and the stuff like that. That accomplishes that in spades. But as you're saying right there, there's higher stakes in this story mm-hmm. that the that the story isn't offering. It, it keeps it too closely guarded. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I totally forgot. Yeah, there's stakes for the mom or the old lady talking to the mom to get that stuff out of her that is only just kind of hinted at, and it's and hard. That, it's hard that, to get that through when you're just an eavesdropping person. Yeah, so I almost feel like our our bystander need to have more buy-in. I think initially more skepticism and then that that catalyst that really shifts her over into believing. Um, I also think that the dreams, I don't know, maybe sell more about the dreams or something. Well, there's no reason to have them. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, there can be. Like, again, if if the the woman who's talking to the mom had a more spellbound, siren, magical, music of Eric Zahn type quality to it Mm -hmm. that's more infectious, then I would say, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And... Again, the person is a bystander. There's a big difference in, I think, in Lovecrafting horror. When you're a bystander walking down the street and a big tentacle monster rips someone to shreds in front of you, you go, ah, I saw something I shouldn't have. My perceptions are forever changed. Versus, I'm in the waiting room. I'm kind of sitting two chairs back and leaning in and listening in, and they're just talking about spooky monsters. They don't compare to buy-in. One is you're immediately impacted the other one is not so much and that's again the story is super easily remedied by having that older lady have some sort of siren or magical quality that through our oral means infects our bystander that gives them dreams gives them okay i i've seen a glimpse of something it's Mm -hmm. it's an easy fix it really is and you know while if you'd had that in there, it's still a good story. Yeah. I think it still has some great elements. There's a sense there's a sense of quietness about it. Um, like just lurking below the surface, there's tension and horror. We don't see we we get glimpses of things, but it's like Lovecraft, who never gave us the full shebang. <laughs> um, this story does the similar thing. Um but um, again, an enjoyable story. Yep, there there's a little bit of issues that could have been easily fixed, um, but definitely accomplishes 
a study in humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, so with that, we're going to take a brief musical intermission before turning to our next short story discussion. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are now going to discuss our second short story by Nancy Kilpatrick titled Eye of the Beholder. The story opens to an intervention of the nip-tuck variety. The 38-year-old Liz is the subject while her sister, cousin, and best friend argue that Liz needs to make some changes to her physical appearance if she wants to get married and start that family before her biological clock says no way to kids. Liz <laughs> is forced into going to see a doctor who can help her change her appearance. Liz thought she might be agreeable to Botox or fills, but the toad-like doctor indicate Liz will need a lot of work. Over the intervening months, about a year, of several visits, Liz notices that her face looks more youthful, although she has put on some weight. Her friends encourage Liz to consider the doctor as a prospective husband. <laughs> Liz isn't too sure about that is talked into a dinner party where the doctor is her date for the evening. She notices that he uh, imitates her actions throughout the evening, an odd behavior. At the end of the evening, as she and the doctor are walking out to the parking lot, Liz becomes kind of off-balanced, attributing it to probably the wine that she drank, and then feels a pinch at her neck before she passes out. Straight out of a Twilight Zone Lovecraft crossover, Liz wakes up in the doctor's facility. She is able to get up and she walks down a short hallway to a nursery containing three newborns, an incubator type of setup. Gasp! Oh my god, all three babies look like the doctor, but they also sport antennae and mecho um, receptors at the tips. They're insect, insectoid-looking creatures who all respond to her presence. Think that antenna is following her around. Liz realizes that she has lost weight, suddenly, about 30 pounds that she gained over the past year. As the curator assistant in the entomology department of her local natural history museum, Let's just say Liz makes some rapid connections here. The doctor raped her. These insect creatures are her children. And her once perfect face is now being harvested for its nutritious <laughs> tissue for the babies. In a weird twist, Liz got a guy, a family, and the supposed good life her friends has talked about it, albeit a short one. Liz takes stock and takes a piece of skin from the doctor's hand and begins feeding one of her daughters. And Nick, do tell me, what are your initial thoughts? 
Oh boy. <laughs> so we, we talked about this beforehand, and we both agree this is definitely a, a morality tale. Um, you went Twilight Zone. I went <laughs> Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> this this story is delightfully cartoonish. It is a total dark comedy, and I, I enjoy it for that. In fact. I think this short story should actually be like an EC-style comic book or like an episode of Tales from the Crypt. It needs a, a Crypt Keeper opening and closing, doing bad puns about, you know, uh, <laughs> getting plastic surgery and becoming a new person. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I'm not gifted with really bad puns for this one. But, I mean, the, the story has bad puns. At least I, I, I think... There's some. We'll bring those up in a second. But uh, your 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 overall thoughts, real quick. Oh boy, yeah. Uh, of the two stories, um, I definitely felt that again, uh, most readers would be able to identify with this situation at least at a high level, where friends and society are pressuring uh, oneself to make changes to conform to the norms and expectations of society. Here's our morality. Um, as a woman, I felt that I could also relate to Liz's insecurity that arises from that societal standard of what beauty is, um, and also life gold expectations. Um, but I also felt a sense of sadness because this support system of friends and family really let Liz down. Were they, th where maybe there are good intentions um, you know, hey, Liz, you talk about wanting a husband and a family all the time. Well, maybe you need to work on, on your body. And that superficially, you will become the embodiment of beauty that you'll be able to attract a male. Mm -hmm. And be able to have that husband and family, at least for a, rela uh, for a little while. Um, so for all those, they tick the box, very, you know, engaging, hooks you in, um, Liz is a likable character, and she's fresh. You know, there's a freshness about her, um, because we are getting a female perspective, one that we don't always get, um, in, well, obviously in Lovecraft stories, but even in Lovecraftian lit, it's not always a, a female uh, as the, our lead protagonist. So, um... In, in comedy. I'm going to say Lovecraft uh, writing mm -hmm. is lacking in comedy because a lot of this stuff, you know, could go the existential dread or it could go into absurd comedy. And and to, to me, this story is hilarious. Uh, so but, I'd love to hear, you know, uh, where I went kind of the more serious route. And I think maybe because <laughs> as, as an stuff. audience member, you know, as a woman, for me, I I took a more personal and a more serious approach. Oh, no, the story is serious. That I, I don't disagree that the story is, mm -hmm. I mean, there's horrors of peer pressure. What, what does it mean to be beautiful? And mm -hmm. appearances, and we'll talk about like the themes of this because the, the themes are delivered. I just think they're delivered through the lens of dark comedy. <laughs> so, and, so like some examples of like this story kind of not taking its. I mean, it takes itself with a little bit of uh, well, absurd dark horror comedy. It's a Tales from the Crypt story, so. Well, and I think the seriousness of the issues are oh, there. Yes, but um, they're. 
they're they're discussed in a way that's also got that dark yeah. humor like a political cartoon you know mm-hmm. you, you laugh you know um so like so for for example the the peer pressure scenes are extremely over the top and what i mean by that is peer pressure comes in all sorts of forms mm-hmm. and what we got here is the cinematic version we've got the the version where it's one person at a table surrounded by people all kind of punching down and and, and i know that happens um, but it's in that kind of cinematic, exaggerated way that you'd see in a lot of the rom-coms of, like, the late 90s, especially to the 2000s. And, and, um, and also, where I knew this, this story was kind of going in, I don't want to say parody, but, and again, two different takes, one from you, one from me, is, is, is the doctor's name. His name is Dr. Todd. And, you know, he's he's described as having kind of a New England slash Germanic accent. And I'm like, German? Dr. Todd? Todd? Todd is tot. And tot is German for death. His name is Dr. Death, you know? <laughs> when you put that out there, right front and center, you, you know. <laughs> now, now, to be fair, though, my reading is that Nancy's probably look like, hmm, well, let's see, he's kind of toad-like, so I'll just call him Dr. Todd and drop the A. That that was my take. Uh, I, either way, though, he, he's he's a cartoonish um, doctor in kind of the vein of, like, some of the other kind of horror films that have, like, a medical backdrop. Like, there's a, a series called Dr. Giggles. I think it's got Corbin Bernstein as the titular Dr. Giggles, where he's a dentist, and, you know, he does bad stuff, but there's, like, you know, it's so silly and over the top. But it's kind of a dark comedy. Um, and also, kind of the pacing of this makes me think of a Tales from the Crypt episode, where the first, you know... You know, three fourths of the story is really steady. Uh, in fact, I, I really do wish this was a comic because I think visually seeing Liz would help. The, the scripters in the story are okay. They don't like. I don't get the impression that Liz is ugly. She's like normal looking. I think she's like every other ninety-five yeah. percent uh, of the population, which is you know everyday people. She's got that, a little bit of chubbiness and a couple well, wrinkles. It's and it's, and you know what? She's probably she's probably beautiful and she has beautiful features, but she hasn't had a whole lot of yeah. luck meeting anybody. And come yeah. on, if you're if you're working in a basement, eight hours a day, <laughs> and you're most likely to. Uh, Where's my yeah. vitamin D from the sun? <laughs> well, you know, where are you going to find a mate? You either yeah. have to be, you know, out there socially, um, or maybe you find it in your work environment. She happened to find it in her work environment, just not quite the work <laughs> environment that we all thought. But the pacing of this makes me think of, like, a, a Tales from the Crypt slash comic book, where the first three-fourths are, like, really even, steady. We got a problem. Her problem is she's apparently ugly. Go to the plastic surgeon. You see her changes a little bit over time. And all of a sudden, bam, this story goes to 11 immediately. We're talking alien insectoids and, and babies. and Holy smokes, it just... Right out of left field. And here's the deal. You know the story's going to go somewhere because the Doctor is so weird. And this isn't a horror anthology. But you just... 
I'll be honest, I was floored where it actually wound up going. Didn't see it. Didn't see it coming from a mile away. Because, you know, plastic surgery type stories, you know, there's there's the um, Pedro Almodovar film, The Skin I Live In, Eyes mm-hmm. Without a Face, yep. uh, Face Off, although that's not a horror film, but the acting is horrible. <laughs> but, but you know, you, you have, there's a lot of plastic surgery horror stories out there. I'm like, okay, it might take some sort of... I don't want to say conventional route, but it's something that... No, it went full-on praying mantis style. And and again, I think that's so cartooning over the top that it veers into the, the, the grotesquery that it's well, just and, funny. and body horror. Oh, yeah, there's body horror here. This... And, and uh, to be fair, or to be candid mm-hmm. and, and forthright... Um, I haven't seen Nip Tuck, so I don't know, other than the very brief thing that I read on <clears throat> Wikipedia, and I don't know. Have you have I, you seen Nip Tuck? I, I know it was I a very pervasive show for a while there, but, but, you know, we've seen other shows that, you know, like Real Housewives, we've seen one or two episodes of that where, you I, know... I haven't. What? what, what well, like one of our vacations. Are you stuff? We've seen like one or two episodes, like on at a hotel where we've been to a conference, like flipping through. I I I've seen totally like, don't remember this. But okay. okay, but 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 the, you know they you know that that image of the the, the well the the perfection the and... faux perfection. That's mm-hmm. what these folks are trying to yeah. get on Liz, where you know the peer pressure is so outlandish that you know they want her to be like a, a real housewife or you know the, the other thing is you know I. There's other stories that have kind of done similar things, but mm-hmm. albeit in that more rom-com fashion. The Duff. We always bring up The Duff here. This is the only Lovecraft podcast out there that, that has... That will tie to The Duff. <laughs> that will tie to The Duff. <laughs> and also there was that Gerard Butler, uh, Catherine Heigl film, um, The... Ugly the, Truth The, the Ugly Truth. You know, where it's yeah. like, you know, be yourself type thing. That's that's kind of the theme of this type of, uh, of um, story is, you know, what is beauty? Um... And unfortunately, our protagonist learns that lesson maybe differently. If well, here's the deal. Well, she embraces motherhood, which is <laughs> is you know, and she she knows that well. If the babies decide they want her imperfect flesh, that <laughs> she's not going to be around forever. And as an entomologist, you know, she would know. This is where I I think that the story kind of faltered with with the pacing. Mm-hmm. I think Nancy does a great job with the premise, bringing in the tropes to kind of help yes. you know bring you in and kind of get you up to speed so you know what these characters are kind of about without having to go into a lot of detail because obviously you don't have a lot of time when you're in a short story. But I do feel that I wish there'd been a little more room to bring in a little bit more detail over that year to be able to kind of uh, share in Liz's journey uh, over that year. Like, the nuances. Feeling more pretty, but also feeling like, wow, I'm, I, I have more weight. Well, what else is going on as she gains weight? Is she feeling something? You know, just little things, little cookies to kind of really punch home. So, the so ending. it should have taken the Rosemary's Baby approach, and the, like like the first story, you know, mm-hmm. there's some motherhood here. Where at the end, you're a mom that has a kid that 
either spawn a Satan or in you know fake kid filled with insects or in this case pure insects. But that was the thing that like you know Rosemary's baby. She's trying to have a kid. She noticed like you know she's losing all this weight and other things are going on. You see her her journey through her pregnancy and and the payoff. There there's some parallels to this to both stories to that. Mm-hmm. To Rosemary's Baby, and I, I can see where this one, yeah, if it had a bit more, um, you know, uh, during her journey, her body changing, and she noticed, and you know, those are all easy fixes, one sentence here or there, you know, she notices this, she notices that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, to be fair, in in the in the story, they do mention like she's put on a little bit of weight, so there is that, but it's, I think, a couple more sentences about. You know, maybe the fleshiness of the skin or something, maybe not feeling real, and maybe it's in there, and I just am not remembering it. But just maybe just a little bit more detail dropped in there. If you're carrying baby insects inside of you, I think you would notice something is awry that that you could dismiss at some point. Like I'm not feeling so good, but you know, it was the weird thing I drink or something. You know, or it's the the procedures are making me feel woozy or something. It's the fact that she's, you know, she does mention that she goes into the doctor's appointment. You know, her friend goes with her on the first one, and then after that, she's kind of on her own. And she says she gets in there, and she kind of falls asleep, you know, um, surprisingly. Um, Maybe there would have been a good, you know, hey, I feel a little weird, or I feel sore, or, I don't know. Is there... I'm just kind of thinking, is there something conspiracy here that the friend is maybe in on this a little? I do kind of wonder that uh, if her friend didn't have something going on because I just happen to know sets... this one plastic surgeon for you and you totally should hook up with him. And, and I'm going to leave you to be in the doctor's office or at my house and stuff. There, there, there probably isn't, but... It, it, it sure could. does kind of the subtext reads like <laughs> her friend, uh, her, and I don't know... If it's the friend, the cousin, or the sister, one of them, you do kind of wonder, okay, is there something in cahoots here? Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you feel bad for Liz. I feel bad for Liz. And, mm-hmm. it, and you know, most like horror films, especially like slasher films, you know, where the person dies because they are engaging in like teenage debauchery, sex, drugs, rock and roll, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, the typical things that, you know, you're supposed to die for, you know, whatever um but you know liz liz is i she's either going to be eaten you know praying manta style Mm -hmm. she she does have a bad fate is her fate warranted that's the thing is you know she's an innocent character her her crime is she's guilty of giving into peer pressure and not having confidence and so this story does kind of take that heavy-handed dare approach to drugs in this case the peer pressure and confidence that you know had she stood up to her friends and close circle of folks that she wouldn't be in this predicament and that's pretty heavy-handed but it's also you know you know be true to yourself type of thing if if you're true to yourself you're going to not get impregnated by the insect lectoids from planet 10 yeah maybe the you know this is a cautionary tale and a Beauty is there. Mm-hmm. Trust in yourself and don't give in to peer pressure. Yep. <laughs> well, <laughs> again, fun story. Serious like Twilight Zone, dark comedy like uh, Tales from the Crypt. I, I still think it's delightful. I do feel bad. I do feel bad for Liz at the end, but at the same time, uh, 
you know, have a lot of fun with the story. Both of the stories have been fun. They both have a lot of crossover themes of insect kids and motherhood and hospital settings. So there, there, there's our thematic episode for everyone today. <laughs> and on that note, let's take a brief, brief musical intermission and we'll move on to upcoming events. This episode's bumper is courtesy of Catherine McCarthy, author of Immortal. We interviewed McCarthy about her short story collection, Mists and Megaliths, on episode two of our transmission series. We wish her continued success. Oh my gosh, episode two? That seems so long ago. Yeah. Oh my goodness, wow. Boy, how time flies. Uh, For upcoming events... For uh, HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, we will be spotlighting witchy storytellers Kathleen Kaufman, Janet Joyce Holden, and Heather Herman. This episode will post on Sunday, October 31st. Halloween! I was going to say, oh boy, that date sounds familiar. (laughs) And uh, coming up on our Scholars from the Edge of Time podcast, where we focus on sword and planet genre, we'll be discussing this year's probably this month's uh, release of Dune. Uh, This episode will broadcast live on Thursday, October 28th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and will be available to stream afterwards on Blog Talk Radio. Okay, all you valley girls and boys, let me straighten my little scrunchie out. Who misses the bodacious 80s? Like for sure everyone, right? will definitely join us for our November programming where we will feature the righteous decade of the recent past, the most triumphant and fantabulous 80s. We will have like totally awesome programming that you are not going to want to miss. We'll be picking a couple of stories from the totally legit Attack from the 80s, a collection edited by the radical Eugene Johnson and published by the bad to the bone Raw Dog Screaming Press. That episode will drop on Sunday, November 14th. For our transmission episode, which will post on November 30th, we will interview a couple of homeboy and homegirl authors from the collection. And on Fragments, we'll chill as we discuss the deadly and gnarly The Void, a 2016 indie film written by and directed by Big Kahunas, Stephen Kostansky and Jeremy Gillespie. It's going to be wicked. Gag me with a spoon. (laughs) (laughs) We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course, you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we've either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>